The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludi. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. I pray that you would blow your spirit through our midst. Rushing wind, blow through our temple. Cleanse us and clean us. Purify us. Empower us. Enable us. Ennoble us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd take this humble offering of truth this morning and that you would transform our lives with it. That we would never be the same. Lord, I pray that there would be a line of demarcation in our spiritual lives drawn today. That we are dead in Christ Jesus. Lord, with great expectancy, we come before you today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message trumped the message I did have for today. And I don't know if you remember my statement from last week, a few weeks ago. I said that the number one downloaded sermon that I have online is called An Amazing Week at Ellerslie. And so that if I just called another sermon Another Amazing Week at Ellerslie, I'd probably get a lot of attention. So I pondered uh, that because it would fit, wouldn't it? It's like I could really manipulate it uh, right now. Because it truly was an amazing week at Ellerslie. Uh, and <clears throat> started on Monday. And, I, you know, I don't even know that I could describe it. You know, so I don't know that I'm going to try uh, and describe it. But it was the sweet presence of God for a long period of time. And, you know, we've all tasted of the presence of God I shouldn't say all, but many of us have tasted of the presence of God, some measure, and we have our moments, our glimpses. <clears throat> this was an extended period of time of grace, an extra measure of something that brought us to our knees, that searched our hearts and brought sin to the surface, that pressed us to his word to see. I mean, there were moments where the word of God was more alive to us than it ever has been before. There's no way that that's a cerebral thing. It was a spiritual thing. Where suddenly you're staring at the same scripture you've seen your entire life, you memorized when you were in Awanas growing up, and now suddenly you know what it means. It's not that you didn't know what it means, but now you know what it means. It's speaking to something deeper inside of your spirit is awakened and so what happened with the baptisms? By the way, when you saw how fast they went under and came up, you need to realize context for that. It wasn't necessarily that we have a style here that is just like get them in and out as quickly as possible. We did have that style the other day because it was so utterly cold in there. Hurry up. Who's next? Get them in here. Get them out. So, uh, but death can work very quickly. 
And as I made it very clear to all the students uh, that were being baptized, that water isn't what saves you. That is merely a testimony to the heavenlies of a very real thing that has taken place in your heart, in your life, through faith. Faith is what saves you. By grace, you are saved through faith. It's the action of faith that enables the grace to come in and rescue you. That water is not grace, and it is not salvation, and it is not faith. It is a testimony to the heavenlies and to all the onlooking crowd saying, I, 2,000 years ago, when Christ died, died in him. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I realize you're still staring at me. But it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now this life that I'm going to live in this body that you all see will be lived by a different fuel source. Instead of me, it'll be lived by faith, the faith of the Son of God which has been born in me. That's the testimony of baptism. And we witnessed it this week in such a marvelous and powerful way. We had this progression of the week which only God could design and build. But when the intensity of God's presence comes into your midst, it's funny, but very normal people that were perfectly fine suddenly are not fine. It's hard to explain, but there is a deep searchlight that like starts going through your being, and suddenly things that you didn't even know were there are there, and there's this discontent, there's this wrestling match. The presence of God is there. Why wouldn't everyone just be fine? Instead, the presence of God, where there is any dirt whatsoever, when there is any lie that is mixed into the the overall recipe, has to be dealt with. And God comes in with that searchlight, points at it. And then there's that wrestling match of soul. We saw this last semester with the Ellerslie students. A very similar thing happened. It wasn't orchestrated by any man. It was just orchestrated by God. When students seek the face of God intensely, day in, day out, God doesn't want to hide. When we seek after him with all our heart, he will be found. And that's what was happening. We were finding God, and the whole while we were finding him, we were wondering if it was such a good idea. And that's what led to somewhat of the crisis, or as we've termed in Christian history, the dark night of the soul. It's funny, because everyone was happy. Everything is great. Isn't this beautiful? And then suddenly, one after the next in the student body is suddenly having a crisis within their soul. They've never felt so much attack in their entire life. Some people, it was this week, they've never had to deal with darkness so intensely as they did this week. And here I am calling it an amazing week at Ellerslie. What kind of amazing week is that? Do you have a sick sense of humor, Eric? When the presence of God comes, he deals with us. He rescues us. And to be rescued, we have to realize we're drowning. If you don't realize you're drowning, then you don't cry out for the rescue boat. How can they find you on the waters unless they hear the cry? So God has to show you you're drowning. Do you realize it? I didn't know it. I thought I was fine. And it's an awakening to a state of soul. That's what we saw this week. Without trying, it happened. And then we had certain students that were breaking through. And there was victory. There was a triumph that was beginning to uh, grow within our midst. And yet there were certain ones that 
weren't finding that, and that's the panic moment, where it's just like everyone has something, and now I'm the one that doesn't. And so I think we had around 16 students at one point in time that raised their hand and said, I need help. I need the body of Christ to surround me and help push through. And one of our statements was, we will not leave anyone behind. We're all going forward with Jesus. And I want you to realize God wants to take us all forward with him. Oh, what great moments followed that. Not necessarily fun for some of you. You're like, oh, call it great. The entire student body praying is we would go back in that back room with, oh, I don't know, eight to ten of us, and we would fight for a soul. The entire student body praying, as long as it took. Sometimes, I think the longest one was three hours. Last semester, we had longer than that. But nonstop, and I tell you what, it's hard work. As we said this week, prayer, prayer gets glossed over sometimes by the people that don't actually pray. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to spend my days praying. Oh, really? Would you? Uh, I don't think you've ever prayed for a day. Uh, because if anyone ever gives you a line like that, if, you know, if they say, what are you doing at Ellerslie? Well, we do a lot of praying. Oh, you're really working hard. Yep, we are. Uh, That's about as hard at work as you could pull off, is focused, intensified praying, wrestling. You realize how weak you are. You realize how strong your flesh can be to press its agenda, to say, just fall asleep. I mean, you're in the middle of the day. It's one in the afternoon. Just go to sleep. I mean, it is hard labor. It's spiritual battle for souls. And every time a student would go back in there, There'd be a heaviness, and every time they'd come out, there was a lightness. Every time. We batted a thousand. How about we say it this way? God batted a thousand. You know that God has always batted a thousand? You know that he has never had a low uh, batting average in all of history? That he's always batted a thousand. It's us that get in the way and we stop praying, we stop fighting, we stop short. We pray for 15 minutes when maybe two hours was needed to press it through. And we saw it. We saw strength. And so what this message is today is it's a trip into the back room. It's for all of us because we talked about it this week. There were a lot of students that never even made it back into the back room. And so they didn't know what was happening back there. It wasn't some hocus-pocus weird stuff that was going on. We weren't casting out demons back there. You know, the best way to cast out a demon is throw truth on that life. Demons can't hang around very long with that lingering in the air. Truth. Truth sets free. Most of us have been encumbered with lies, and they encircle our brains. We cannot see straight. We hear something, but it bounces off. In other words, we can know it with the ear, but not know it in our understanding. But when you take in truth into your innermost part, it truly drops shackles off your wrists. And so what we were doing in there, I I was joking with some group, uh, you know, one group, we were talking about them coming back in here, and I say, we're not going to cause you to levitate. You know, we're not, what we do back here is extremely basic and simple. We apply truth to the human soul. And no matter what the issue is in your life, truth works. There is no special circumstance. There is no special sin situation. You do not have an unusual bout with sin. You have sin. 
And sin is dealt with by the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other solution. Meds won't take care of it. A year with a psychologist laying on one of those couches, having them hear all of your issues, going into some regression and walking through all your childhood issues, is not the solution. The cross is. The cross is the answer to every human ailment. And the students that watched it this week beheld the power of the cross. We didn't have to come up with some newfangled means of rescuing a soul. We went back 2,000 years ago and we said, God, if you said this is what mattered, and you said in the fullness of time you dealt with it, we want to go back to that, stare it in the face, and say, Lord Jesus, how does this work in our life? So I want to take you into the back room because one of the things we said was, and I don't know what it turned out to be, around 11, 12 that ended up going through this, because we had 16, but certain people were back in that back room, and as they were back in that back room, they weren't even the one that was being focused on, and they got set free, because the truth was lingering in the air. It was potent stuff. It was like a heavy perfume. It's like, do you smell it? Uh Uh-huh. They get knocked out. It was a powerful, powerful thing. But we had said that every single one of us technically should walk through this. Every single one of us should walk through this regularly. It's not therapy, it's truth. Truth being applied into the soul in the midst of a generation full of lies and deceit. The enemy controls the atmosphere of this earth. And he is not feeding what was going on at Ellerslie this week into anyone's mind. He's doing his best to cancel it out, to twist it, to subvert it, to undermine it. So let's do the opposite. Let's establish it in our midst. And for some of you, you need a trip to the back room. And this isn't quite what we went through this week. And so, now we can't really do that where we're going to walk through. And I was even thinking about that this week. Nick got up and he said, this needs to happen in the church at large. It does. Could you imagine if the church bodies all committed that we're going to pray and stay in here while every single individual in a church is being worked over by the truth and being set free by it? We get exhausted here at Ellerslie even thinking about it because we know what it was like. Two straight days, all the way from early morning to late in the evening, praying, wrestling, and we, we made it through and in such an incredibly beautiful fashion. So... We go back into the back room. I want you to come with me right now. Okay, we're all there. And we're sitting there, and I want you to allow God to personalize this to you. I don't care if you just walked through it this week. Fresh. You know that I think about the gospel all the time. Why? Because it's life. It's the power of God unto salvation, which isn't just salvation from the judgment to come. It's salvation in every moment of every day. Did you know that you need to be rescued right now? Because you could easily just glaze over, that you could turn inward and begin to make this day about you. But Christianity is outward. It's about the glory of Jesus. And to stay focused on Jesus Christ, you need help. You need a Savior. You need a Savior from you. What Jesus Christ came to do wasn't just done for you once. It is an ongoing salvation. It's a small s salvation, if you will. It's a daily, ever needed salvation of our souls. You're tempted. You know what you need? A savior. 
A savior to lift you in that moment and say, I'm here for you. Keep walking. Stay focused on me. When the crises come out in your life, the winds and the rains start blowing against your house and beating against your house, you know what you need? You need a savior. You need someone who will be your strong one, who will stand there and protect your house and preserve you and be a shield about you. When the mountains crumble to the sea, the earth and the sky peel away. Say the financial systems collapse and your bank account is empty. You know what you need? You need a savior. Someone to calm your soul and say, it's secure because I'm in control of your life. Take no thought. Seek first the kingdom. I will take care of you. You need a savior that actually does take care of you. And that is our God. The gospel is the power of God unto such a savior being realized in your life every moment of every day. So, I've never done this with a big group. I've done it in little small groups with an individual in front of me. In fact, the biggest I've ever done was a couple days ago. We had three girls at once in that back room. We did three. So this is a little bigger than three. Now, this isn't some weird psycho thing we're going to walk through. We're going to talk truth. And I want you to take truth. You see, look at the title of this. Reckoning with truth. Thank you, Sandy, for a great title, by the way. That's excellent. Reckoning with truth. The word reckon is going to be one of the most critical words that we discuss today. Because when we talk about faith, faith is what grasps the things of heaven and brings them to this earth. Whether it's to the world around you or whether it's to just your own soul. And that's what we're talking about today. You need to be able to reach through the veil from the natural into the supernatural realm. And grab the stuff of heaven and bring it into your soul. And that is the process of reckoning. In my culture that I grew up in, okay, not just the American culture, but sort of my middle class subculture of, you know, Christian middle classness, there's a certain propriety, there's a certain decorum. When you go out to lunch or to dinner, you always are the one that wants to pay, okay? It's, it's a basic decorum issue. You don't want to be the one that wants to be paid for. You want to be the one to pay. Okay? And so you have these battles with those people. Like Rich Runkles is one of the hardest people to deal with on this. He just takes it and he's like, oh, it's already paid. It's like, what? You need to give me some dignity here. So we love to be able to treat or to take care. And that's just the subculture that I come from within the American culture. Okay? Some of you know exactly what I mean, especially the guys in here. Sort of a dignity issue, almost a pride issue at a certain level. It's like if you're the one that's paying, well, then you're the alpha male in that situation. Okay? And so it's not that it has to be out of a bad motive because, you know, I don't have a bad motive in it. I truly love to bless. So does Rich. In other words, it's a combat of service. However, you know, we as guys have a dignity thing that can get woven into it too. So imagine you go out to lunch with a guy. And you're like, hey, order anything you want. I'm I'm taking care of this. Okay, one of the worst things could ever happen is then you reach into your pocket at the end and the wallet's not there. Okay, now that is a bad, dark moment for a guy. Okay, and it's happened to me before. Okay, that's why I speak from personal experience. Okay, so now suddenly you are at the mercies of someone else. And it's the guy that you already told you, you said, order anything you want. Now he ordered some big dish, and guess who's responsible for paying for it? He is. And now he's not just responsible for paying for his dish, he's paying for yours. And that's awkward. 
Okay, it's, everything's backwards here. One of the hardest things is say he holds out, you know, a 20. And he says, here, here. You can see the 20 and you can know that the 20's for you. That doesn't mean you're taking it. This is where a lot of us end up stymied in our Christian walk. We can know about the 20 hanging there. The truth is there for the taking. We know about it. We can answer trivia questions about it. Did this guy offer you a 20? Absolutely. Sure. True. The fact that it's true that there's a 20 that's been offered you doesn't necessarily mean you took it. And what oftentimes hinders you from taking it? You'd, some of us would rather wash dishes in the back. Anything but taking a handout. I can't take the handout. I can't do it. This is my dignity that's at stake. You know how many men miss out on the substance of the cross of Jesus Christ because they refuse to take the handout. Because they can wash dishes to pay their bill. They, they can't bend themselves to what Christ has done on their behalf. Now, I'd like that's not a true picture of what Christ has done because to bring down the cross of Jesus Christ to a 20 is the ultimate crime. So, I don't have any idea how to truly give a metaphor for what Christ has done that is at all realistic. But if you were in shackles and you were a slave, and the price to purchase you from your slavery was in the trillions, there was no way to get the key. There was only one key, and it cost everything. It cost, think about this, the life of God. What's that worth? An awful lot. The life of God. And suddenly, God comes to you and he's holding out a key. And he's saying, this will unlock it. And only this will unlock it. I've paid the bet. I've paid the bill. I dealt with your debt. He's holding it there. You can know he's holding it there and you can know that it's the only thing that will unlock those shackles. The question is, are you going to take it? Because to take it is to acknowledge. I needed that. Without that, I had nothing. You, you did all that. And this is a dignity thing at a certain level. It's like, why'd you do that? I didn't ask you to do it for me. But he did it anyways. And he's holding the key there and he knows there's only one solution for your life. For God so loved that he gave. And there's that key. And there's your shackles. Reckoning is not just knowing that that key is there. You can answer your trivia questions all day long and answer them correctly about what Jesus Christ did. Did he die on the cross 2,000 years ago? True. Did he die for you? You can even say true. Did he rise from the dead? True. Did he ascend to be with the Father? True. And meanwhile, the key is still in God's hands. He has it outheld to you, and you have not taken it. Because reckoning is actually taking and bringing and applying. It is taking it as fact. It is humbling yourself to reach out and take and claim that which God has done for you. There's a reaching involved. There's an acceptance involved. There is a very real construct 
of something that Christ has done being taken and applied into your situation. That's reckoning. The term is an accounting term, which means if you have been given funds, you reckon them to your account. It's a fact. It's treated as fact in your life. And if you know that you have zero dollars in your account, guess what? You're not going to write a check. But if you know that you have $1,000 in your account and you have a bill for 900 you feel comfortable writing the check. And that's reckoning. You know it's there. So you begin to live as if it's there. The checkbook comes out and you actually feel like, yes, I can move forward with confidence that my behavior is going to alter. I've been set free. You begin to live and write the checks of your life based on the fact that it has been done. So when we start dealing with reckoning, I just want you to know that's what it means. And it's more than just head knowledge. It's knowing something and then taking it. Now there's another dimension I want to open up to you because in Romans 6, it talks about knowing, it talks about reckoning, and it talks about presenting or yielding your body unto God. You see the key. You know it's there. But it's not enough to just know it's there. It's not even enough to know that that key is for you. It's to reach out and accept that key. It's to take that key and allow it to be applied to your situation and to set you free from those shackles. And when you do, you recognize instantaneously that your life is no longer your own. You were bought. You were bought with that purchase of the cross. You were bought with that key. Jesus Christ sets you free unto himself. You are a bondservant. You have been set free in the only reasonable act of worship and service unto your Savior is to kneel down and dedicate your life to him and say, take my body. Take it. You do with it what you see fit. I've just described belief. Belief, faith, is not just knowing about, but it's reckoning it and taking it. And then it's following through with the natural conclusion of offering back to God what is rightfully his. He died for a reason, and that wasn't to just get your shackles off. It was to get you. It was to get you and ultimately fill you with himself. Okay, so I want to give a few different metaphors to, that we're going to build with. One is, and I've said this many times to you before, but it can't hurt you to hear it again. There's three characters walking a ridgepole. Walking that ridge full is impossible. But faith is the first character, and he doesn't stagger, he doesn't waver, he walks it because he's fact. There is another character immediately behind him known as faith. And as long as faith stays focused on fact, he maintains his balance, and he actually walks out the impossible life. He follows fact, and faith works. However, there's a third, creepier sort of character behind faith known as experience. And experience has an agenda all his own. Experience is a loudmouth. Faith doesn't say much. Just walks it. Just confident. Experience is always, you know, barking about something, complaining about something. Did you see this? Have you heard this? Can you believe that happened? It's always reaching out and clawing at faith, saying, turn around and consult me. Look at this. How could God say this if this is true? Experience needs to shut up. 
Most of us spend our entire Christian life staring back at experience and believing experience as opposed to looking at faith and following it as if it were fact. We stare for, sorry, faith stares at fact. God's word is fact. It's not wishful thinking. Whatever it says goes. But most of us who spend our Christian life consulting experience, and experience will always fall off the roof, without a doubt, and if faith is consulting it, it falls off right along with it. Faith follows experience, toppling down to the ground over and over and over again. Climbs back up, consults experience, falls back down. The only way to get experience to fall into a line with fact is for faith to ignore it and to point its eyes and its focus completely on fact and never turn and consult experience. And then suddenly, you know what happens? Experience begins to walk the ridgepole. Your experience follows your faith which follows fact. We do not build our confidence on myths and fables and wishful thinking. These are not theories. This is the word of God. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions and we're gonna establish a foundation. Remember, we're in the back room here. Do you believe that God can lie? There's a correct answer for that and there's an answer that I go, eh. Okay, this is a critical thing. If you believe God can lie, then you are defying one of the most basic tenets of his nature. One of the things that Paul said was the anchor of his soul, and that is the fact that God cannot lie. It says it right there, God cannot lie, but I wouldn't believe the screen. I'd believe the word of God. You see, in our Christian culture, the emergent church has moved in as an attempted to undermine the credibility of the word of God. When you undermine the credibility of the word of God, you undermine everything else. The entire world begins to fall apart because the stabilizing force of everything is the word of God. And it's not because I worship the word of God in text. It's because it's the only thing that leads us to the word of God in person. When you mess with the word of God in text, you mess with the word of God in person, and those are fighting words for me. And the word of God is not just the opinions of men. It's not just the ramblings of good moral men. It is the writing of God. It is the expression of God. It is the revelation of God. And it is, in fact, the word of God. And God cannot lie. Wherein God, in Hebrews 6, it says, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchanging nature of his counsel, of his revealed truth, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Paul had an anchor in his soul. He was unmoved. Not many Christians today have this anchor. And I want you to reckon with this right now. Because if you can get this as a foundation, I want you to realize where we're going today, it'll change your life. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. You have to know that God cannot lie. If you know that God cannot lie, and he has promised, that means you have a legal hold on his promise. 
He cannot violate his nature. And he has spoken it. He has revealed it. That's what we call rock. You can stand on it and it doesn't move. In God is no shadow of turning. There's no variation in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so is his word. It doesn't alter. It doesn't change as the emergent movement would say it's evolving. No, it's not. God doesn't alter and his word doesn't alter. God is stationary. He is stable. We are the weird ones flying all over the map. The only way for Christianity to work is we must have two solid foundations beneath our feet. One, God cannot lie. Two, the word of God is the truth. Spoken by God, built by God, fulfilled by God. One, God cannot lie. Two, what is the word of God to you? Fables, myth, legend, good moral teaching, as Brian McLaren, the emergent leader, would say, narrative, just good story. You know, it has some good moral attributes to it. We can learn about God, but you can't take it as an unchanging, veritable substance. I will defy that man to his face if he ever gets near me. I am furious with what that single man has done in this generation to undermine the confidence of the Christian world in the nature and the immutability, the unchanging nature of the word of God. We are messing with God's word here. And it's God's expression and his revelation. And without this, as you will soon see, you lose all confidence of knowing what you can stand on and what you can't. And if you can't stand on a rock, you have sand beneath your feet. And Jesus himself says, when the winds and the rains come and beat against your house, you will fall. And many of us as Christians have seen that. The winds and the rains come. We're believers. We believe God. But we don't have firm foundation beneath us where when the enemy pushes, we say, That's facts, and you know it. Back off. You must know where you stand. The word of God is truth, and God cannot lie, which means in the word of God, there is no lie. You follow my logic? In the word of God, which is the word of God, since God cannot lie, his word cannot lie. His word is substantial. It is concrete, concrete. It's diamond beneath our feet. It cannot be cut and hashed into pieces. It is solid and God did not stutter. We can build our life upon it. Thy word is truth. All right, now I have a title up here, but before I get into that, I want to ask you to deal with your own soul on this point. You will deviate from where we're going if you actually say, I don't believe it. If you believe that God cannot lie and you believe his word is in fact his word and that it cannot lie, we can keep moving together, okay, as a group. We're gonna progress. If you say, well, I think God can lie, then suddenly you have no foundation. God can help you, no doubt about it. But I can only appeal to his word. I can only appeal to him. He says he cannot lie. And he says his word is truth. I believe it. You know that it's a supernatural work of grace within the soul to believe these things? You know how few people even do? So if you find a resonance with what I'm saying, 
The grace of God is at work within your soul. You can tell the enemy that next time he tries to harass you about the uh, illegitimacy of your, of your supposed conversion. It's supernatural for you to even be esteeming what I'm talking about. So if you're not seeing it, that means you should cry out to your God for the ability to see it. It's crystal clear to me. I don't waffle around. You know, there's a lot of things in the word of God that you can throw back at me and say, okay, Eric, what about this? Uh, We have Adam lying in the Garden of Eden, supposedly asleep. And then his rib is taken from his side and out of it is fashioned a woman. And I go, yeah, what's your point? Uh, You believe it? (laughs) Yes, I do. It's that simple. The word of God is fact. I don't need to make any excuses for it. Fact. I need to try and explain it. I wasn't there. You weren't either. I believe God over your ridiculous mind. I don't care about what you have to say about it. I care about what God says. God is a lot bigger than any of us. So I say we take him at his word. And when you begin to do that, you'll realize that truth has power in your life. But if you don't stand on it, if you don't have a firm foundation, it pushes you around. The natural realm will attempt to defy you. And it wins over Christians all the time. They get knocked down by the winds and the rains. Enough. Let's begin to stand. So let's start here. Okay, because what I just gave you is the remedy for your soul throughout all of Scripture. You take every Scripture in the Bible and you say, that's fact. You know what? That'll change your entire study of the Word of God. I just read a fact. You could announce it, too, to everyone around you. That's fact. I know it sounds strange. I believe it. People are looking at you like, what in the world's wrong with you? (laughs) Fact. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, take no thought for your life. If you seek first the kingdom of heaven, not after what you're going to wear, how you're going to sleep, you know, what your shelter's going to be, how you're going to eat. You seek first him and his righteousness. He'll take care of all these things. And you can say, instead of trying to reason through it as some mature adult, you say, fact. That's a fact. I don't need to figure it out. I trust. My God is accurate. When he says, take no thought for my life, I have to trust him, even though it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense to my natural mind. I submit, and I say, my God is right. And anything that attempts to defy my God in my inner man is wrong. God's right. I'm the liar, not him. So let's go to Romans 6, because this is what we walked through all this last week. Romans 6. Now, if we had more time, we'd go through this in even more depth. But we're going to go through it in the sort of the abbreviated version. It's not going to rob you of anything, okay? Don't worry. It's still good, solid substance. But Romans 6 is one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire Bible because it enunciates Paul enunciating the gospel in a very unique and simple and straightforward way. The whole New Testament enunciates the gospel. The whole Old Testament enunciates the gospel. So it's not that this is the only chapter in the Bible that does But this does it with great succinctness. It says it, removing all the cloud. It says, you want to know how this works. Let's get down to brass tacks. And Romans 6 hits it on the head. And it hits it sharply. It hits it squarely. And in goes the nail. Many of you have memorized Romans 6. Many of you have known the words of Romans 6. 
but you've known it sort of like a key that is hanging near you. Meanwhile, you still are in manacles. Romans 7, by the way, is the classic chapter in the Bible that most modern Christians like to camp in. You know, they like build their tent in Romans 7 and say, Romans 7, Romans 7, Romans 7. Romans 7 is halfway between Romans 6 and Romans 8. Romans 6 and Romans 8 happen to be the two most triumphant chapters in the Bible, arguably. Okay, there's some other triumphant chapters, so that it's arguably. But that's saying a lot. That two of the most triumphant are one chapter apart. Even half of Romans 7 is part of the triumph. But there's a little chunk of Romans 7 that everyone takes out and they go, hey, this is my scripture, this is my life verse. Paul's saying, I, I esteem the law, but I can't seem to keep it. What I want to do, I don't do. And then what I don't want to do, I do. What's wrong with me? Who can save me from this body of death? Period. And we go, oh, look at that. Paul's defeated. That explains it. Uh, Paul's talking to the Jews who are living under the law. And they understand the law of sin and death. And they don't have a higher law known as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. Romans 6 is the answer. Romans 8 is his finishing triumphant conclusion. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. That will become very important to you in just the next few minutes. In Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We no longer have to walk after the urges of the body. We no longer have to be subjected under this misery and this dominion of sin in the flesh. He's dealt with it. There's hope. And it's fact. So let's start dealing with some fact here. Romans 6. I am crucified with Christ. Now that's in Galatians, I realize. But it's a statement that is linked with Romans 6 very clearly. Paul has the audacity to say, I am crucified with Christ. Well, that's a, that's a strange statement. You know, a lot of us could say, I am crucified like Christ was crucified. In other words, I died to myself like Christ died. This is how most of us have reasoned through it. But Paul is saying something very specifically here. I am crucified with Christ. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, Paul is making the declaration that he died. Now, that's an interesting one. Here I am saying that the word of God is fact. Doesn't that seem to be stretching things a little? Was Paul around? Well, he was, actually. We weren't. So as a result, yeah, maybe Paul, well, he's alive, though, when he's saying this. How could he have died when Christ died? That doesn't even make sense. This is the gospel in a nutshell. What we're about to walk through here, if you can understand it in your soul, Lord Jesus, give us understanding. Please, Lord Jesus, remove the barnacles from our sight that we would see and behold. God is making a very clear statement. You have a problem with you. And the problem is you. It's your old man. Mine's known as old Eric. Yours have unique names to him that somehow seem strangely similar to your first name. The old version of you. It's the version that is under the law of sin and death. It is the version that cries out in Romans 7. I can't do it. There's nothing in me that can perform it. There's a problem in you. It's that one problem that keeps getting you in trouble. 
That one problem that keeps getting angry, that keeps getting frustrated, that keeps going, falling for the pride, the bait of pride and self-centeredness. That problem that still deals with lust and can't seem to get out of the cycle. That's the old you. And it's a miserable problem. The best thing that could ever happen in your life is you get sick and tired of the old you. That's the best way to prepare you for the gospel that God has on earth. Sick of this. God, help me. I don't know how to get out of this cycle. I keep doing this. I want to do the right thing, and I can't. And Paul says, you want a secret? You enter into the death of Jesus Christ. When he died, he died for you. You try and kill your old man. Try and get it out of you. Try and nail it to a tree. You can't do it. Your old man still keeps coming back. There is only one that can do the work for you, and that was done. Why do you think Jesus Christ came? To do the work. He came to deal with the old you. And when he died, you died. You just haven't recognized it yet. If there's a feast in the back room that I make, and I spread it out on the table, and it is luscious, and it's, oh, it's every food that you could delight in. Sitting back there, and I come out to you here, you're sitting on the, the step here, and I say, oh, why don't you go back in and partake of the feast? Oh, it's, it's really good. Made it just for you. 20 minutes later, I come back out, and there you are still sitting on the step. Well, uh, what, what are you doing down here? Didn't I encourage you to go back in and take the feast? Made it for you. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Uh, I don't see it, I don't smell it, and I don't taste it. It's not real. How many of us, when it comes to our old man, and he comes to what I'm saying right now, that the old man is actually dealt with, and then you're looking at your experience right now as you're on the ridgepole, and I'm calling you to an impossible life, a triumphant existence, and what are you turning around and doing? My old man seems very much alive. So if Jesus dealt with it, he sure didn't do a very good job. The only way for you to get that feast To begin to smell it, see it, and taste it is you have to get up and you have to begin to move in the direction of it. You must reckon it as a fact. Not because I said it. This is a promise from God and he cannot lie. Your God has said 2,000 years ago that he died your death. He died for your old man. He dealt with it. He removed its position. He dealt with it legally so that you could actually exert with new papers, authoritative papers, signed by the living God in blood. Take them before all the bar of hell and say, you have no power over me. Let me go. They can't mess with you anymore. That's a fact. So let's talk about a few scriptures for that. It's not just my opinion. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man, and you can personalize your name to it here, our old, my old Eric, give your own name in there, okay, as we're going through. This has to be personalized to you. It's not theoretical. It's not information for the masses. It's needed in your soul. That my old Eric is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Do you believe that? I want you to evaluate in your heart right now if you actually believe that. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe God cannot lie? Do you believe that the word of God is truth? Know ye not 
that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. His death. It's not your death that you somehow conjured up, that you somehow were able to pull off. His death. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Read Romans 6. Take it as fact. And you'll find that this is the message. Jesus Christ died. And when he died, your old man was dealt with. The question is, are you going to take those keys and apply them to those manacles that are about your wrists? Are you going to take it? Or are you going to walk away? Are you going to justify and say, you know what? My shackles are still on. If this was dealt with 2,000 years ago, you'd think they'd be off. You know what that is the equivalent of? That's sitting here on the step and saying, until the food is carted in front of me and someone takes a spoon out and shoves it in my mouth, I can't believe it. You have a problem then. Because the kingdom of heaven and all its substance is accessed through faith. That's the access. That's how God's economy works. So God is saying, if you want it, you have to believe me. You have to take me at my word and get up and start moving towards that back room. If you don't start walking, if you don't reach out and accept what I've done and take the keys, it's of no use to you. Those shackles will still remain, even though I have purchased the key with my own blood. Those shackles remain if faith is not operative in your soul. You get up and you begin to move. Don't measure it based on your experience. I know our propensity. I'm saying that your old man is dead. Not because I want it to be true. It's because God promised. God has spoken and it is fact and my God cannot lie. So I don't care if you've ever experienced it. And I don't care if in this moment as you're declaring it and reckoning it within your own soul. I don't care if you don't feel anything right now. Because it's the equivalent of sitting here and finally deciding and saying, I believe it. I believe it. I'm going to get up. And you begin to walk. It might even be multiple steps before the smell begins to waft beneath your nose. I smell it. I smell it. This is what I went through in my Christian life. I had to get up and begin to move towards it. And then suddenly, heavenly, sent from above. It's true. And then suddenly I walk around the corner. The door opens. I see it. It's real. It's real. It's fact. And then I dig in and I start eating. I tasted and saw that the Lord is good. Don't just know it. Don't treat it as good poetry. It must be fact within your soul and you must get up and go take it. All right. So my encouragement to you would be, you must reckon this. Not just what's on the screen right now because I haven't gotten to it. You must reckon The fact, not wishful thinking, that your old man is dead. Your old man has always been there. I recognize that. Just like your shackles would always be there if you never reached out and took the key. You can sing songs about the key. You can pray and thank God in your prayers. Thank you for the key. But if you don't reach out and take the key, what are you doing? It's rather ridiculous. Don't sing songs about the banquet in the back. If you've never smelled it, seen it, or tasted it, that's rather ridiculous. You believe it's there, and you go after it. So, my next question for you is, do you believe 
that as you entered into Christ, and here's one of the key things I want to build for you here. There's two key elements in regards to our relationship positionally in Jesus Christ. One is that we need to be in Christ. The second is that Christ needs to be in us. But it starts with us entering into Christ because that's how we access his righteousness to enter into the Holy of Holies or the presence of God, the throne room of grace, so that he can enter into us. Christ, us in Christ, is what is necessary for Christ to get in us. So what happens in this transaction of reckoning is 2,000 years ago, when Christ died, you actually enter into that death. And when Christ died and was buried, so were you. I know that seems a little strange because that was 2,000 years ago. But I'm saying I took it as fact. Radically altered my life. And I'm a very happy guy for it. Are you going to join me? And take it as fact. God says it. He doesn't change. It's fact. It's truth. Don't try and reason through it. Take it as a child. A child can understand it. They just say, that's just the way it goes. God said it. You enter into Christ. That's being in Christ. That's the first step forward. That's being in his, the merits of his shed blood. You are now surrounded with a cloak. The merits of Christ, when you enter into that death, all of the merits of that death, the strength of it, the efficacy, is surrounding you. It's wrapped around you so that you can now participate in the presence of God. This is good. So if you died with Christ and were buried... Well, what happened after the burial? Well, on the third day, he rose to newness of life. So if you believe that God cannot lie, and you believe his word is truth, and as a result in it, there is no lie, then as a result of that, you believe that when Christ died, you died because God couldn't lie in Romans 6. It's fact. Therefore, you are dead. But if you were in Christ for his death, and his burial, could that also mean, brace yourselves, that you are also risen to newness of life in him? So if you are in him at the cross, then you are also in him in the resurrection. My question to you is, do you believe it? And will you take it? Because here's the first thought. I don't have resurrection life in me. I don't care. That's why you need it. I don't have the the feast in my belly as you're sitting here. Yes, which is why you should reckon it as yours. Get up and take it. What in the world are you sitting there for babbling to yourself about the fact that you don't have it? You reckon it as a means of accessing it. You believe first. The result is what follows. Are you willing to believe? That when Christ died, you died. Therefore, the problem is out of the way. You are now free to have new ownership take over because you have always been under the power of darkness, flesh, sin, and self. But now there is an access, an access into a new life, Christ owning you. And it's no longer your life, but it's his life at large within you. It's a new Eric, or put your name there, at work within you. In other words, I'm still here. I'm still watching the whole drama. But it's not me who lives. It's Christ in me now. It's not the old Eric who lives. It's 
the new Eric, but the new Eric's Christ in me, taking on the body of Eric, if you will. That's, that's the gospel at work. So do you believe it? And are you willing to reckon it? Are you willing to reckon it a fact that you died 2,000 years ago? Because if you do, and you don't base it on your experience, and you say, I'm willing, I'm willing to step forward, I want you to realize that all heaven is going to open up to you. Because you know what follows? Now you're in Christ. So wherever Christ goes, you know that you go there? And so if he's coming back to, you know that Christ was resurrected not just for his own good? He was resurrected for you. The same spirit that brought Christ to life from the grave dwells in us. The almighty power of God is bequeathed to us. Do you believe that 2,000 years ago you died in him? Because if you do, that means you were buried in him. That also means, according to Paul, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Is that fable? Is that myth? Is that legend? Is that wishful thinking? I encourage you to take it as fact. And it will change your life. Reckon it. Take it. Apply it to your soul. I do not care if you've experienced it yet. You go after it and you will experience it. I guarantee it, not because it's based on my confidence in my own understanding. It's based on the word of God. I don't have some philosophy I'm trying to throw out on you. Based on my personal experience. I am giving you fact. And if you take fact from God because he has promised and he cannot lie, you have a sure foundation for your faith. Faith is, God's not asking you to believe in something that has no merit and no substance and no proof. This is enough proof for you as a Christian. God said it. He cannot lie. Two immutable things. It's the anchor of your soul. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh or the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Fact. Reckon. This is where you must reckon. Don't just hear these things. Don't just know about the key. Don't just know about the feast. You must take it. You must take it as if God did it only for you. Yes, he did it for all of his beloved. But God did it for you. And you must reckon it as such. You cannot take these things in generalities. You must take them as specifics. If you want to be rescued by your living God, then you must take him at his word. And when he holds out the rescue strategy, you take it. If you're dying and and drowning in the water and he sends you a lifeboat, get in it. Don't stare at it and answer trivia questions about it. You get in the lifeboat. That's reckoning it. That's the thing that can save me. You get out of the water and into the boat. Don't stare at it any longer. 
Don't sing songs about the boat while you drown. Get in it. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a command. That is a command not from me. And it's not even a command just from Paul. Because Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, bringing you the very command of God. And he says, reckon. You must reckon it. Remember I said there's three things? There's knowing, then there's reckoning, and then there's presenting. Present and yield. He has the key. Don't stare at the key. Take the key. And when he sets you free from all the the judgment, from all the penalty, from all the torment, he sets you free from it. Eternal separation from God, eternal torment. He separated you back unto himself, taking you from darkness into light. What's the reasonable act of service? Bend your knee. Lay open your life. Give him your body. That's what he purchased. Give him what he asked for. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? That you are bought with a price? Do you not know? If you know it and you've reckoned it, then give it to him. We're not talking about anything flabbergasting here. This is just normal, logical flow of what anyone should do. He gave up his life for you. Will you give your life to him? Will you? So I've asked you, I don't know, about five questions now. Do you believe that God cannot lie? Because if you do, we can start building. Do you believe that the word of God is the word of God? Which means if it's God's word and he cannot lie, the word of God cannot lie. And in Romans 6, when he's saying that when he died, your old man died in him. If you could reckon that as truth, your old man is dealt with. That's a fact. There's hope for you. And if you are in Christ in his death, then likewise you will be with him in his resurrection. Do you believe it? Because if you believe it, I'm going to join with Paul in joining with God in saying, submit, yield, present your body unto the living God. That's your reasonable act of service. It's reasonable. That's logical. It's only understandable. You have no right to yourself. You were controlled and mastered by sin. And now God's saying you must be controlled and mastered by me, righteousness, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Give yourself to me. You can't live in no man's land. It's either you're controlled by sin or you're controlled by him. You choose your master. Choose wisely. God's given you an out. He's given you an escape. Don't, because of your pride and your arrogance, turn down his key. He's given you himself. Take it. Take it. Grab a hold of it. Let him apply his grace to every dimension of your life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Neither yield ye your members which is your body, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves, is the same word as present yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, or your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. God, take this and make it an instrument of righteousness. Use it. Do what you want with it. It belongs to you. 
All right, here's where it gets interesting. If that wasn't interesting, you've entered into Christ. So when he died, you died. The question is, do you believe it? If you don't believe that, well, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. If you don't believe God cannot lie, the whole thing falls apart. You either build rock by rock on the foundation that God lays out in his word, or you falter at the very beginning, and it stymies the ability to take any of it from the heavenly storehouse. So I encourage you to trust your God, because what is built upon stone after stone after stone is absolutely extraordinary. You enter into Jesus Christ, and his death is your death. He did the work. He set you free from the power of sin and death so that you can live under a new ruling authority. Notice the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You can now be ruled by Jesus Christ. So when he died and he was buried, so were you. The work's been done. You need to reckon it as yours. And then when he rose to newness of life, so do you. And there's an opportunity to live a new life with a new master, a new fragrance about your soul, no longer the stench of sin, but now the fragrance of life and beauty and health and peace. It's a new master at the helm. Everything has changed in your life. This is called Christianity. Nothing can remain the same. Why? Sin and Christ are very different from each other. And they rule their houses very differently. Your life will look differently. And that's a wonderful truth. Do you believe it? If you've died in him and you've been raised to newness of life in him, 40 days after that resurrection, he did something that shocked everyone. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead. What a testimony this is going to be. It'll be so easy for people to believe. All you have to do is hold up your scars, and they'll say, whoa, that's the living God. It is better for you that I go. It is better for you that I go to be with the Father. Because if I go, I can give to you the paraclete. I can give to you the Spirit of God. What's he doing? Could you... Counsel with us first before you do this? I'm not exactly sure if you know what you're talking about here. We need you down here. Don't you realize that when I died, you died, and you're in me? That when I rose again, you're in me, and now you have newness of life. And now as I ascend, I'm not leaving you. I'm taking you in a very strange way with me. And where I'm going you can go also. I am going to sit down at the right hand of the Father. You know what the right hand is? It's the hand of authority, majesty, power, control. You know that Jesus yielded his left arm and leaned on his Father while he was here on earth. The left arm is the arm of dependence. And so a bride leans on the strong right arm of her groom. And so Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, signifying that all the strength and the authority of the Father has been bequeathed to the Son. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and now he has been lifted high and given the position over all other authorities and powers. Everything is under his feet. Now that's impressive because that's our God. Yay, God! That's good news! But then there's a strange wrinkle to it. Here's in Ephesians 1. Paul's building a case, and listen to where he takes it. 
The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named and hath put all things under his feet. That's our Jesus. That's his position. And he says, it's better for you that I go. What's he doing? You enter into Jesus Christ. Into his death, you're now cloaked in his blood and his righteousness. And when you are raised to newness of life, you're still cloaked in him. Yet you have a new life that's beginning to find its, its voice within. It's the life of Christ. And the way that is found is in this cloak of righteousness, you're now welcomed into the Holy of Holies. You know what's in the Holy of Holies? The presence of God. You've entered into Christ so that you could come into his very presence and now he could enter into you. You know where the right hand of the Father is? It's in the Holy of Holies, in heaven. It's the very presence of God. You've been invited and you ascended with him, unbeknownst to you, and you were invited in. But you must reckon it. There's a place that you can partake of. And it's at the right hand of Jesus. Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy. Remember the last scripture was Ephesians 1. Jesus is in the heavenly place. Seated at the right hand of the Father. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ, you share in his death. And his death becomes the death for your old man that's been a major problem in your existence. But no more. Because you've reckoned. You've reckoned a change of management. You've reckoned that your old man is dead so that a new man can live. And now his life is your life. And there's a newness, a new fragrance that can now enter into your existence. You are emptied and prepared as a vessel to be housed by the living God because you have been taken up to the Holy of Holies. Where the Father says, it is his great delight to give us the Spirit. To give us Christ in us. We are down here on earth. I recognize that. However, there is a very real reality just as you died in Christ and you weren't there as far as I know, but you were spiritually. It's a spiritual transaction and you were dealing with it in a very human body on planet earth 2,000 years later. And you are appropriating a very spiritual reality that took place 2,000 years ago and bringing it into our modern day and sticking it within the soul of a human being. That you died and you rose, and now you ascended, and you have access. God has access to you, and you have access to him. And in your very real body, this Holy Spirit is sent down to enable you, to fill you, and now there's a hope of glory, and that's Christ in us, that God can be clearly seen on planet Earth again. You are in Christ and seated in heavenly places. So my question to you is, do you believe it? Because I am presenting this to you not as wishful thinking, but as fact. You know what that means? If you take this as fact, that you're seated in the heavenly place, 
Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. All authority has been given to him. At his name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the glory of the Father. Do you realize what you wield? Do you realize your position? If you're in Christ, that means everything is under your feet. But you have to be in Christ. And when you're in Christ, that means you wield this authority only the way God would. Remember how Jesus wielded his authority? Only as the Father did. We are not renegades with some nuclear bomb that we can just send it anywhere we want. We are in Christ and we are given all authority to obey and to put into practice the very calling of Jesus Christ on earth. Not us. It's his work. It started as his work. We couldn't pull it off. And it finishes as his work. It is his work in and through us. He takes our bodies and he breathes into them his life. And now just as Jesus only did that which the Father was doing and only spoke that which the Father was speaking, we only do that which Jesus is doing. And we only speak that which Jesus is speaking. But when we speak and when we pray and we pray in the name of Jesus, did you know that all hell must back off? Did you know that all darkness is under Jesus' feet and do you know whose body you are? Do you know whose feet you bear? You bear the feet of the Son of God. And all darkness has been put under them. Do you realize what it means to be the body of Christ? It means in actuality, not in theory. He means it. He dwells within his body. You are the body of Christ. And you have all authority over your soul to tell it to come into alignment with the kingdom of heaven. There's a line in Romans 6. By the way, this has all been from Romans 6. I know we've veered out and given a couple other scriptures to reinforce, but this has all been Romans 6. It's a powerful chapter, powerful chapter in the Bible. Listen to this. Romans 6, 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. That sounds easy, doesn't it? Paul's making this easy statement, and you're like, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Why don't you tell me how to do that? Because If it was that easy, I would have done that a long time ago. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Oh, great. Okay. Good job, Paul. Thanks for giving me the exhortation. Now I have the burden of guilt because I can't do it. He says, did you just read what I said? I said, your old man was dealt with by Christ, not by you. You've been trying to put it to death. You've been trying to let not sin reign in your mortal body, your way on your terms. You don't try and get out of the manacles without the key. It doesn't work. You don't try and build your own feast here out of air. You have to go to his feast. He has what you need. You are complaining about something that is your fault. You have not taken and reckoned for your life what he has done. This word, let not, comes from the Greek word basileo, which is the word used for king. In fact, it's the word used for king of kings. This is authority, all authority, vested, given to the believer. Why? Because you're not just an earthly guy or girl anymore. You're in Christ. Did you know that fear could not access Christ? He was without sin. Did you know that lust could not access Christ? 
He was without sin. Do you know that anger and rage of the wrong sort, the sinful sort, could not access Christ? You know that greed, pride could not access Christ? Where do you stand? In Christ. Do you see how powerful it is to follow through on what God's promises are? Because if you realize your position, you will not be shoved around by the enemy anymore and suddenly this makes sense. Let not. With the dictatorial ruling authority of a king, you command your body to obey the living God. Down! No! Captive, take it out of here. I am not thinking that thought. No. You let not sin reign in the body of Christ. This is his body. Your old man's been dealt with. There is no reason why you should remain in this state anymore. Enter into it. Reckon it. It's as stupid as hanging on with those manacles and complaining to God. Why? No matter how hard you pray, they're not breaking. And he's saying... There's no need for prayer here. You take the key. There's plenty of things in life that need prayer. This isn't one of them. This is faith. You take it as a child. If that key is dangling in front of you, you reach out, you grab it. You say, Jesus, I have nothing else but you. Thank you for what you've done. Stick it into the lock. Unlock those manacles and let not those manacles ever get back on your wrists by the authority of Jesus Christ that is vested in you because of your position in the heavenly places. You must realize what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is built on fact, not fable. We are built on the word of God and is a solid substance. Do you believe that God cannot lie? Do you believe that the word of God is in fact the revealed word of God? And that as a result, it cannot lie. And then as we just explore Romans 6, one chapter in the entire Bible, your world can turn upside down. And that's what's known as the truth shall make you free. This is how truth works. It comes in, the soul sees it, beholds it, reaches out, grabs it, applies it, and suddenly, there's newness of life. This works. This is truth. Walk in it. The promises of God. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are amen unto the glory of God. You'll notice a very interesting grammatical thing that takes place in this. It doesn't say, for all the promises of God are yea and amen. It says, for all the promises of God in Christ are yes. And all the promises of God are amen in Christ. Everything we're talking about stems from the decision that you made to enter into his death. If you do not enter into him, into the merits of his shed blood, into his death, this doesn't work. You come to the Bible and you say, there's a good promise. But if you stand outside of Christ, it's the equivalent of being on on, on top of a plane on the tarmac. You're crawling around on top of it, sort of walking on top of the plane. The plane takes off, and guess what? That plane can defeat the law of gravity with the law of aerodynamics. But you're on the outside of it. You can esteem the plane, but when that plane takes off, the law of gravity knocks you off. And you find yourself flat on your face on that tarmac. You didn't last very long. It's like riding a mechanical bull. You can't stay on the plane. You must enter into the plane. There's a big difference between the two. Don't just know about God. You must get into Jesus. 
Stay in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. And these things remain true. The promises of God, which, by the way, are exceeding great and precious. Most of us don't even know what they are. We don't have time to go through them today. There's so many, I don't even know all of them. The Bible is loaded with them, and they're fact. You know what you can do as a Christian? If you're in Christ, you can look through Scripture, and you can say, oh, God, and he goes, yes. Yeah, I haven't even asked the question yet, God. I was wondering, yes. I don't know that you're going to know what I'm going to say. I'm going to ask about that. Yes. The promises of God are yes. Predecided yes. He will say yes, 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 yes. Whatsoever you ask in the name of Jesus will be done. You must be in him. And when you are in him, you are seated in the heavenly place. And that is how prayer functions. You must know your position. You must be in Christ to wield the promises and the power and the efficacy of his word in your life, in your marriage, in your family, and in this world. His answer is yes. And here's how I picture it. I was saying this to a couple uh, students uh, a few days ago. God's like, yes, 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 yes. And then uh, uh, Jesus and the Spirit are like, amen, amen. They're all in agreement. They're all saying no. That's why it's there. That's why, we, that's why Jesus died. That's what the blood was for. We want to say yes. Could you imagine God? Just change your entire mentality on this. He wants to say yes. He has said yes. But he's hanging a key in front of you. And he's saying, you have to be in me. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, not on top of the plane, in the law of aerodynamics, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus trumps the law of sin and death, but you have to be in, not out looking at it. Get in and get in now. Reckon his death, your death. Get in Jesus. The ball starts rolling in your spiritual life because you get out of the way. It makes room for Jesus to come in. He clothes you. He draws you into his presence, into his holy place. He ascends with you. And now you are in the very place of the presence of God and he fills you and he takes over your body on here on earth and he makes it work. And suddenly all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And you are walking through this earth with rock beneath your feet, a growl within your soul, all authority vested in the children of God to accomplish on earth what God intends to accomplish. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. That's the end conclusion. Romans 6 to Romans 8. Don't stumble over Romans 7 and miss the fact that God is building a mighty army. He is not building defeated little lambs. He is building lambs with the faces of lions. Our confidence. So say you take a step forward and you really do reckon this. What's the difference between you reckoning it today and all the other Christian experiences you've always had, which start with a bang and then end with a defeat? Any difference? Do you have any hope? Is there any hope in this walk? Or is it just a crapshoot? Is it all just sort of luck-based, where some it works for and some that doesn't? How does this work? Here's my statement on that. 
because I'm about to give it to you, straight out of the word of God. Don't measure today by your experience. You focus on fact and you let God deal with straightening up your experience to match the will of God. God has no interest in your failure, none. Which is why he has given you all the equipment to complain about the fact that you had this false sense of having your shackles removed only to find out that your shackles were still on isn't an experience that you should consult. If you have taken off the shackles and this truth was reverberating in your soul at one time only to be a dog returning to your vomit and there are your shackles again, I'll give you a piece of advice. Get back in Christ and do it now. There's an ark in the Old Testament before the rains came and the door was open to it. Say you go into the ark and you're hanging out in there, that's the right place to be because when that door closes, you're outside of it. But say, hypothetically, a little butterfly comes in, you, it catches your attention, goes back out of the ark and you go out there with your net to try and catch it. Meanwhile, you realize you step in a pile of manure. You know, when that, those cows were coming through, they left a little pile there and uh, it's on your f- shoe now. And you suddenly realize I'm outside the ark with manure all over my shoe. Here's my advice to you. Get back in the ark and get back in quick. Don't run around searching for more butterflies. Don't wait for the manure to dry. Noah has cleaning materials inside. Get in. He's used to animals all over the place. Get in. Get into that ark and get in quick. When you know that you're not where you should be, then get where you should be. That's how the gospel works. That's how the blood of Jesus works. The merits of the shed blood are efficacious, which means they're good then and they're good today and they'll be good tomorrow. Don't play outside the ark. Get inside and remain inside. That's when life works. You want to know if you can make it the distance? Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, finish, bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Is that wishful thinking? That's fact. I want you to realize that if you have even followed me in the remotest sense and believed this, that's a work of grace within you. So, by logical deduction, we can say, God's begun a work. You know what that means? That means that you can be confident because he's begun a work in you and he will finish it. He will bring it to completion. Stand on it. Instead of letting the enemy push you around saying, what if? You look back and you give him Philippians 1.6 and you say, stick that down your throat. Be quiet. My God has spoken and my God cannot lie and I am in Christ Jesus and the merits of his shed blood are mine. And when he died, I died. And when he rose to newness of life, so did I. And when he ascended on high, he took me with him. I don't know why he did, but for some reason he loves me. Okay, enemy? And you know what that means? Everything's under his feet and unfortunately for you, that means that everything's under my feet. So back off says, resist the devil and he will flee. That doesn't give you any options because that's fact. Out! He cannot mess with you anymore. The enemy is dealt with. 
You reckon that as fact and begin to live in that. And your world will start looking like a Christian. Where is the Christian man and woman of today? Where is the man or woman of today that actually believes God and builds his life upon his word? Because if they return, our world turns upside down. Just like it did in the days of Acts. Do you hear the sound of an abundance of rain? What happens if we take God seriously? What if our feet are on solid rock? Well, God promises the world will take note. The world will turn upside down. So let's go out and do it. Take the key, unlock the manacles, go in, take of the feast. This is truth. Don't let it be someone else's truth today. Let it be your truth. It's for you. It's your gospel. Personalized to you with your name written all over it. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.